for those of you who are new, what we're doing is we're going through the book of First Thessalonians. And we're, we take the book and books of the Bible, and we just kind of walk through them and walk through them. We take a few verses every, every week. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through chapter 18. And in this portion, Paul gives us a bunch of different, it's kind of the closing out the letter. And so it's the last thing that he's going to say. And you know how when you're, um, the last thing you say, um, when someone's gone away, and I think Toby used this example last time, but, you know, it's like your, your kid is taken off. They're, they're going away. They have their own apartment. Maybe they're going to the military. Maybe they're going, um, you know, to work or to college or whatever. And the, the dad's out there. He's saying the last thing. And he's like, you know, you know, remember to check the oil. Remember to do this. Remember to call your mom. These last kind of things. And so all those have distinct meanings. And so Paul goes through and gives us three more of these uh, quick uh, you know, short bursts of things that we are to do. And I just want to go ahead and uh, just read this. It's First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's funny with these little short verses, I always think it's like I used to go to summer camp and they always had the Bible sword drill. I don't know if you guys went to summer camp or what it was, but I think that was just called the sword drill. But anyway, the point was that they tried to see who memorized scriptures. And, you know, they would have like a verse and, you know, a kid would raise his hand and he would say John 3.16 and say what it was like that. And someone always said Jesus wept because it's just a short, you know, verse like that. So listen up. If you guys want to be ready for that, these are the verses that you want, right? Rejoice always. That's one. Entire verse. Rejoice always. 17, pray without ceasing. These are easy ones. So if you get Jesus wept in these three, you're already three ahead right there. <laughs> so, but anyway, I wanna, what I want to do today is I want to just kind of take a look at these things. Because he tells us rejoice always. How do we do that? He says pray without ceasing. How on earth do we do that? He says give thanks in all circumstances. How on earth do we do that? And then he's going to tell us it's the will of Christ for us to do that. So, the Apostle says rejoice always, right? Rejoice isn't a word that we use in normal, everyday conversation, right? When's the last time, you know, you said, oh, yeah, I just did this, and I was like totally rejoicing in it. It was just great, right? We don't normally use that, even though we all knew what it is. So I went to the dictionary to find out what exactly it meant. And according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, it says to feel or to show great happiness about something. So to feel or to show great happiness. That's the um, Cambridge Dictionary of that. So if Paul is telling us to simply rejoice in something that we're already excited about, something that we're already happy, this is a pretty easy commandment to fulfill, right? Because if our team wins, it's easy to show great happiness, right? Our team won, yay. We just naturally show great happiness. If the girl of our lives, the girl of our dreams says, yes, I do, I will marry you, it's easy to feel great happiness, right? It's easy to feel great joy. It just happens to us. But Paul isn't telling us simply to rejoice in those good times. He is telling us to rejoice always. He's saying rejoice always. And so think about your life. What does always mean in your life? What are the situations in your life? What are the circumstances in your life? What are the things that are going through in your life? What about the past? What about the future? 
what are these things? Because God is telling you to rejoice in those things as well. And he's saying rejoice always. You know, it's funny because sometimes we look around the world and we see different people. And there's always someone who just always seems to be happy no matter what. And in fact, they seem to be a little bit too happy, right? And sometimes their happiness seems like out of touch with reality. And we're just like, what's the deal with this guy, right? We just don't understand it. And sometimes we have people who are just always happy and they're like insincere or they're fake or they don't really get to the problem at all, right? And lots of times we say those people, as the old expression goes, it says, well, they're just fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> Meaning that they don't really know what's going on. They're not really in touch with reality. And if they knew what was going on, they would be much more cynical and they wouldn't be so um, happy. But God's not talking about that. And the Apostle Paul isn't saying to be this kind of like, Pollyanna, unrealistic rejoicing. But he's saying to rejoice always. God wants us to be in touch with reality. God wants us to know what's going on. He doesn't want us in this state of denial or denying our emotions that things are easy and hard and life has its ups and downs. He doesn't want us to not be human. Because if we look at Ecclesiastes 3 and we look at the first eight verses here, it says, for everything... There is a season, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. We have an overhead for this, if we want to throw this up. Um, throw this up. That's kind of a funny expression, so let's put it on the overhead instead. So <laughs> Sometimes things in your head sound good, but you're saying they don't. So anyway, here we go. For everything there is a season, there is a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. God wants us to realize that, that there's a time for everything. And we experience all of these emotions. And we experience these ups and downs. And yet he is telling us, rejoice always. Rejoice always, even in the midst of these things. One commentator, when he was describing rejoicing, he said, rejoicing in the Lord is the deep, calm delight of his soul, in communion with the Savior. And it springs out of the Christian graces of faith, of hope, and of life, of love. See, rejoicing should characterize the Christian's life. Rejoicing should characterize the Christian's life. So when people see you, they should see a joyful person. And when they think about you, they should think about this person whose heart is full of happiness and of joy and of encouragement. And they should know a person who knows God and who rejoices in what God does and in who God is and in the people of God. See, God is working for our good. God is working for our glory, and we can rejoice in that. God wants his people to be rejoicing. So Toby already, um, when he led us, he was talking about our circumstances and our situations and our ups and our downs and how our day goes. And he already said that rejoicing doesn't depend on our day. 
it doesn't depend on our life. It doesn't depend on our ups and downs, but it depends on what God does and what God is doing for us and what God is through us. It, it's, it's our rejoicing in him. So when we think about rejoicing, right, God wants us to rejoice always. So think about this. It's a kid's birthday, right? Mom and dad, they go to the store. They buy a bike. Dad wraps it up. The cake, on that big day, the cake comes out, right? The candles get lit. And the kid rejoices. A smile lights up his face. In fact, the smile fills his entire face as the frosting fills his hands and his clothes. The child then sees the bike wrapped up. He sees the shape. He sees the wrapping paper. And he tears into it and he grabs it. And he giggles. This grin's coming out of his mouth. He's so much more excited about it. He tears it in. It's the bike. He takes it outside. And he takes it out of his driveway. And he, when he makes that first power turn, when he feels that those tires bite into the pavement as he goes around the corner, and he feels that thrill and that excitement, he is ecstatic. And he is rejoicing, right? And you know what? His parents take delight in his delight. Right? And God takes delight in our delight. And God rejoices in us as we rejoice in him. Just as the parent who's watching their kid with this birthday bike, right? God rejoices at our rejoicing because he has made us to rejoice. So, what do we rejoice in? We rejoice in what God is doing in our lives. We rejoice in what God is doing in the lives of those people who are around us. Right? And if we really want to understand this rejoicing in God and in others, we need to first realize that Christian joy is not self-centered. Christian joy is not self-centered. So much of our thought and so much idea of getting joy is based on us, is based internally. And when we just look at ourselves, our joy goes off track because all we do is look at ourselves and everything that's going around it. Now, Scripture tells us that we do look to ourselves, but we also look to others. Philippians 2.4 says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when we rejoice with other people, what are some of the things we rejoice in? We rejoice when they repent, when they see their sin, when they repent, when they turn to Christ, or when they're walking in Christ as Christians and there's still sin that goes on and they repent. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice in their growth and in their walk. We rejoice in just their friendship and just their fellowship because God has made us to live in fellowship, and we can take joy in that and rejoice in that. As I've already mentioned, we rejoice in what God, who God is, what God has done, what he's doing in our lives. He has saved us. He is sustaining us as we walk through this earth, and he's going to bring us to heaven. We're going to wipe away all of our tears, and we will see him face to face. And so just think for a moment, just think of this whole rejoicing thing. Is your life characterized by rejoicing? Or is it characterized by the opposite of rejoicing? Complaining, criticizing, a sense of gloominess. Because when we take rejoicing, and we begin to rejoice. We take our eyes off of ourselves. We put it on God, and we put it on others. 
and we look to what God has done, and this is what we rejoice um, in. So, leads me to the next question. Can you make yourself joyful or a rejoicing person? Can you simply just change yourself like that? So, some people say this, joy and happiness are not at our command, and they cannot be turned on and off like a faucet. So we ask, is that true? Is that a true statement? Do we really have no control? Think about this when you were a kid. Was your mom ever so mad at you that she was yelling and yelling so loud that her face got red and there was like fire like coming out of her eyes that were like going directly into your soul? That's how mad she was. So she was just shaking. And then the phone rings. And it's the pastor's wife or her mother-in-law or someone that she wants to look good around with, right? Does she pick up the phone and spew venom at that person? Or is it like, oh, hi, oh, no, no, we're doing great. Yeah, what's going on? Nothing here. You know what I mean? It's like, how easy can you turn your emotions around, right? So there is, so that's not a true statement, right? What about looking at the other side of it, right? Others say it is the very nature of a duty that it is in our power to perform it. And so it is with this one. The very fact that it was laid upon us proves that we may, if we will, obey it. Is this true? If we just want to obey it, can we just obey it? The Bible says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you always do that? Can I ask those closest to you if, because I assume that we want this, right? That we want to be someone who builds up, and we don't want to be someone who's tearing down, and we don't want our talk to be corrupting. Can I ask those around you if you're like that, if you do that? Are you always upbuilding like that, right? Or remember last week when you were out in the car and that person cut you off? If they could hear what was going on in your mind, <laughs> would that build them up? Would that be encouraging? Um, if you were in my car, the answer would have been no. But, <laughs> right? but we have that thing, right? And it's difficult to do that. So the, the answer lies in... We can't do this on our own strength. The strength to do this comes from God, right? And when we see our failure in there, it's meant to drive us to God. It's meant to drive us through prayer into this. Because the ability to do this comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the fruit of the Spirit that God gives us, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this list, of the fruit of the Spirit, only love precedes joy. And so it is the Holy Spirit who will give us this joy. Yes, we do have control that we can have some um, control on us, and it is a duty, and God does command us to do this. But we realize that we're going to fall short, and it's the Holy Spirit in our lives, and it's the Holy Spirit's fruit which will make us be rejoicing people. So, the Apostle Paul goes on, not only says, says rejoice, um, but he also says pray without ceasing. So, I read this story, and it says this. It says, Yogi Berra, the baseball player, was one of the most colorful and popular players for the Yankees. He still remains one of the most quotable uh, figures in sports. One afternoon, Yogi's involved in a big game, and it's a tie game, and there's two outs, and it's the bottom of the ninth. This is the game. And so he plays catcher, and so the, um, the other person comes up. The batter gets in the batter box, 
and he sits down and he makes the sign of the cross on home plate. Yogi Berra, Catholic himself, says, notices it, reaches down, wipes it off, and he says, why don't we let, just God, why don't we let God just watch this game? <laughs> why don't we just let him watch this game? And so the, the uh, um, guy goes on, I forget what his name is, the commentary, but he says, in this classic, in response to this classic yogi comment, Patterson observes this. That's great theology when we're talking about the outcome of a baseball game, but it's terrible theology when applied to, applied to the way that we live our lives and the way that we carry out the work of the church. Worse than that, it is fatal. But too often, that's exactly what we do. God is at the game. He's in an attendance, but only as an honored spectator. Our prayers become merely ceremonial functions. Maybe it's a tip of the hat. Maybe it's a you know, recognition over the loudspeaker that he's here. Or maybe we request him to throw in you know, the first pitch, the game ball. He may even have the best seat in the stadium, but he rarely, if ever, gets on the playing field. So a recent study showed that the average lay person spends four minutes a day in prayer. It says that the average pastor spends seven minutes a day in prayer. And Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. What thoughts go through your head when you hear that? When you hear those words, pray without ceasing, right? Because I can think of a couple of different thoughts right away. First, how on earth do you pray without ceasing? How do you even do that? Second, what would you pray about for that long, right? Would you run out of things to pray for? Would you get bored after a while of praying? So I want to look at these, but I want to look at prayer and the opposite of prayer first. Because what do we do when we pray? When we pray, we come before God and we humble ourselves before God. Because the very act of prayer is the admission that we are not God, that we are not all-powerful, that we are not all-knowing, but that we are weak, and we are plagued with fears and doubts and inabilities. And in prayer, we come before a God who is greater than we are, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing. And when we ask him for something, we make this statement that says we believe that not only is he all-knowing, not only is he all-powerful, but that he is kind and that he is loving, that we need his help and that he will help us. One commentator said this. He said, prayer is not a ceremony. It's not a cold outward observance, but actual communion between man and God, as real and actual as what passes between two men when they speak face to face with each other. When you pray, it is as if the distance between yourself and the throne of God were annihilated. To pray is to come to the throne of grace, into the very presence of God, as really and truly, as if in the body, we stepped upon the gleaming pavement of heaven and we stood at God's footstool and gazed upon the majesty of his appearance. When we pray, we pray to God, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. What's the opposite of prayer? If prayer is humbly coming before our creator, the opposite of prayer is self-sufficiency. It's pride. It's the thought that we don't need God. Or it's the thought that thinks prayer does not work. God is either not powerful enough to help or he's not kind and loving enough to help. And that prayer is worthless. And so instead of being 
people of prayer, we can become people who complain. People who become bitter. And so the question becomes, do you pray or do you not pray? And are your prayers full of life and of humility? Or is it a cold, heartless burden and a duty that must be performed and a guilt that goes with it if you don't perform it? So Paul says to pray continually. When he does that, does that mean that we no longer work? We no longer eat? We no longer sleep, right? But no, obviously, it's an expression of speech. And so earlier, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Do we honestly believe that he worked night and day? No. But what do we believe? We believe that he toiled and he labored so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. And this was what he was like. This is what his life was like. His life was characterized by someone who worked who labored, who toiled so that he wouldn't be a burden, so that he could preach the gospel to them. And so he said, I labored and toiled night and day. So prayer without ceasing doesn't mean a constant mumbling of prayers. But what is it? To pray without ceasing is an attitude of the heart. And it's a desire of the heart. It's this continual pursuit of a personal fellowship with God and just being conscious of his presence throughout the day. It is a life of always trusting and waiting and resting in God. And it means to in peace is but the device of the arch enemy who lies in wait to lead us in ruin. Never, never can prayer cease on this side of the grave. Never till the earthly strife is past and the earthly temptation ended and the earthly tempest has sunk. Then indeed prayer will cease, but it will cease only to swell into praise, to swell praise into a more divine energy and to lift its voice amid the rapturous hallelujahs of the redeemed. So obviously that was written a while back. But what is he saying? As long as we're in the world, we will have enemies. As long as the world, we need God's strength. We need him. And we can never, ever, ever, ever cease to pray. To pray, to pray, to pray. And then he's saying, what's going to happen once we're in heaven? This prayer for these requests becomes praise. We don't stop. But the things we pray end up becoming praise. And so we never, ever stop praying. We pray without ceasing. So Paul then says that we go on and we give thanks in all circumstances. And I read this um, as well. I thought this was pretty interesting. And it says science proves what Scripture already knows. Science proves what Scripture already knows, right? There's an entire field of study called the science of gratitude. And there's the scientific study that was done in these people. And so half the people they took up and they said that every day you have to have a journal and you have to write about three things that you're thankful for. You know, specific. This is what I'm thankful for and why you take three things. The other people said you're going to take a journal and you're going to write it. Whatever you want to write, you write. That's your journal. You write it. And at the when it was all done and the study was all done, they found out that those who kept the gratitude journal, this one of Thanksgiving, lived much happier lives. And the study ends up concluding that gratitude was the key to happiness. And it says these are some of the results. Emotionally, the people experienced more good feelings, were more relaxed, more resilient, less envious, and had happier memories. Their personality changed as well. They were less materialistic, less self-centered, more optimistic, increased, they had increased self-esteem, and they were more spiritual. Socially, 
They had better lives, more friends, healthier marriages. They were kinder, had deeper relationships. Their health improved. Their sleeping improved. They were less sick. They had increased energy, and they had motivation to exercise. Um, it says in their careers, they made better decisions, and their productivity improved. All of these things simply because they were grateful. They wrote three things down. And um, if you ever read any, like, the business, like, how-to books and, like, helpful books and things like that, one of the things you see repeated over and over is this whole idea of thankfulness. And if you look at, like, the people who are, like, ultra-successful, so many of them practice this idea of being thankfulness. And so um, the world knows about this. Society knows about this. Now, I don't know whether all people do it or not. Obviously, they don't. But secular people realize this is power of this being thankfulness. And this is what God is calling us to do, is to be thankful in all things, right? And so sometimes this is easy, right? Sometimes it's easy. We pass the test. We get the job, or whatever it is that we wanted, we get. And it's easy to be thankful for those. And it is good, and it is right that we should be thankful for these things. Because if we're not thankful for these things, we're like that spoiled kid, right, who gets whatever they want and never says thank you. There was a couple of moms that were talking, and they were talking about different things, and they were saying that they're, um, they have a son who's like late 20s. And every time his birthday comes around, he gives, you know, the, you know, the mom his little grocery list of what he wants for his, you know, birthday. He's still in his late 20s. And he gets what he wants, or the mom, you know, I, I don't know how much of the stuff he gives him, but the point was he gives this, he expects to get that, and there's no thankfulness at all. Just this is the grocery list because it's his birthday, so he expects presents. And then when the mom's birthday rolls around, he doesn't call, he doesn't send a card, he doesn't send a gift, nothing, just this complete lack. So for us not to be thankful when God gives us something is wrong. So God is telling us, be thankful in those times. He's telling us to be thankful in everything. And so it's right and it's good that we stop and that we thank God for the things that he has done. But what about when we don't get what we want? Or what happens when we get something that we don't want? Does he really mean that we're to thank God in all circumstances? The answer is yes. But this is a difficult thing, right? And some of the hardest times to be thankful are during times of suffering, during times of trials. And so if we're to be thankful during suffering and times of trials and these difficult things, is God saying that we shouldn't feel any pain in that? that we shouldn't feel any of the sharp bitterness of the trial that we're going through? Not at all. We should feel it, and we should have emotions. I mean, if you're going through something that's horrible and you don't have any emotions at all, you should, you know, check your pulse. <laughs> Is it still there? Because I should be feeling something at this point, what's going, what's going on. But so there's something deeper than that, because even as we saw in Ecclesiastes, right, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to weep. There's a time to do all of these things. But God works with us, and we still are thankful in these times. So just to kind of walk it through and look at a couple of uh, passages to do this, James chapter 1 walks through how we do this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, we counted joy when we counted joy and we thank God when we go through these trials. Not the trials themselves, 
but what God is doing in the trials and what God is going to do through these trials and what we're going to be like after these trials. Because he's maturing us. He's making us more holy. He's making our faith depend on him more and more. And so we thank God for this work that he's doing in our lives. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, it gives kind of like a flow chart on what suffering does. It says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we thank God as well for this. And we thank God um, because we look to the eternity. We look to the long term. Listen to what 1 Peter says, chapter 6. It says, For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we look to that eternity thing. And if we don't look to that, if we don't look to see what God is doing in our lives, if we don't see that future that's before us, then we won't be thanking God for that. But as we look to that future, if we look to see that what God is going to do, we can be thankful in those. So Paul never instructed the church to thank God for evil events, but to thank God that in evil events and in evil times, in these circumstances, our hope remains and God continues to work in our lives. Um, because as Christians, there's no situation at all in which we can't give thanks. Because even in affliction, right, Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors. And the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Back in the 1800s, there was a, uh, a uh, minister, and he also wrote some hymns. His name was George Matheson. And George Matheson ended up going blind when he was 20 years old. He was engaged to be married, and his fiancée found out that he was going blind. And his fiancée found out that there was absolutely nothing that the doctors could do. And his fiancée said to him, I can't go through life with a blind man. And she left him. George Matheson ended up living to age 64. And in one of his prayers, he said this. He said, my God, I have never thanked you for my thorns. I have thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorns. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I've climbed to you by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. Give thanks to God in all circumstances because God is working in your life. He is working to make you more holy. He is working to love, to make you love him more and more. He is working to make you see his glory more and more, his kindness, his generosity, his faith. So we thank him for the roses, but we thank him for the thorns. And if you can't do that, cry out like George said, teach me the glory of, my, of your cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Cry out to God to help you in this. 
God tells us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. He says, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These three things that he's telling us aren't good advice. It's not the secret to happiness. It's not the key to a wonderful life. But they're God's will for you. They're not his entire will for you. But they're a huge, huge part of his will for you. Um, God calls you to be a light in this world. How much will the world see if you're different than what they are? If your life is full of rejoicing, is full of prayer, is full of thankfulness in all circumstances, you will shine like lights in this world. And this is what God's will in Christ Jesus is for you. So does this characterize your life? Does this characterize your life? And I imagine that most of us would say no. Most of us would say, I wish it did. I want it to, but it doesn't. We all fall short. And this is where we have to go back to the gospel. This is where we have to go back, and we need to look into um, the gospel, right? Because the doctor doesn't come to heal those who are healthy or to help those who are healthy. He comes to those who are sick. And Jesus Christ comes to us as well as sinners. And we reach out to Jesus Christ, and we confess our sins. And he is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel is that Jesus Christ forgives you. And the reality is, right, is that we really cannot rejoice and pray and give thanks for all things at all times with our own strength, right? We've already looked at that. It's funny because I was um, preparing for this message, and I probably, you know, spent like the last two hours of the night yesterday or late afternoon just going over this and thinking, okay, you know, so let's rejoice, pray, so let's be thankful. And then I got up this morning at 5 o'clock this morning, and I went over the sermon again and went over my notes and stuff. Probably, I don't imagine Paul does it, but me, how infrequently I do it. I'm like, well, I'm going to know everything I'm going to say. So I spent like another two hours this morning going there. And then I go to Market Basket, and I've got to go to Market Basket. And I stand in line at the customer service thing. And there's some guy in front of me, and the person's like, hey, John, how are you doing? And it's like, you know, the usual one's like getting his, um, um, what are those cards, the, uh, what are they? Lottery tickets, thank you. Um, so he's getting his lottery tickets, right? And they know all about it. And they're like, hey, how'd you do yesterday? He's like, yeah, not too good, and this and that. So they have this relationship, and they're taking their time. And I'm like, come on, people, i got to get going right there. And I'm not rejoicing. I'm not thankful. I'm not praying. I'm kind of doing the opposite of that, you know, because this John is taking so much time and like that. So then he gets it, and then I'm going to go, and I'm going to pick up some, you know, like half and half for, to bring it downstairs. So I run to half and half, and then I'm coming through, the aisle, right? And there's like aisle, 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 you know, when you go through. And there's like one, like, teller who's got like nobody in there. And I'm coming, and I've got two things. I didn't even get the cart because I was in a hurry. I've got two things like this. There's a guy coming this way with like a full basket of things. And he looks at me. He looks at the, at the lady. He's like, Woof, right in front of me. <laughs> so, again, I just spent yesterday afternoon thinking about the rejoicing, being thankful, praying to God. Right before going there, two hours going over this stuff like this. You think I did any of those? <laughs> I didn't, but when I was in a car, I'm like, wait a minute. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Because it is so hard to do it, right? And we need God. We need his Holy Spirit. Because if we can get so frustrated by something cutting us off in line at the grocery store, 
Or we can get so frustrated because here's two people who have this relationship and they're talking to each other. This guy comes in every day. This person works every day. They have a, you know, kind of an enjoyable, you know, time. Can you imagine what's going to happen when it's difficult? Right? Can you imagine when the times get really, really tough and these situations come up? This is why we need God, and this is why we need to continually um, pray for his Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is this joy. It is this thanksgiving. It is these priests, um, peace. And we need the Holy Spirit indwelling us, in us, and his power in order for us to do this. So pray that God will give you the strength, the ability, and the heart to do his will. And ask yourself, what situations, what fears, what worries, what emotions, what things in life prevent me from doing this? What are the things that take away my thankfulness, that take away my rejoicing, that take away my prayer? And think about those things and bring those before God. Bring those before him and ask him, help me in these areas. This is where I know I'm going to be tempted to do this. Um, and bring it before each other as well. Hey, can you pray for me in this area? Because I know that this is a continual temptation. I know that I am never thankful in this area. I know that I'm never rejoicing in this area. I know that I'm not praying in this area. Or if I'm um, just going through these difficult times, just please pray for me. And so I just encourage you now to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The band can come up as I close this in prayer. Father God, we come before you now, Lord. And we confess that we are people, Lord, who often are the opposite of what we should be. Often we're the complainer. Often we're bitter. Often our emotions take over in our heart, Lord, and what's inside comes outside. Or it's inside bounces around in our head over and over as we put, replay situations and what we would do and what we would say, Lord. And I just pray now for your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit that indwells us, that is inside of us, that is your power. Lord, I just pray now for your Spirit to just give us the strength to do this. Lord, I pray that you will help us to rejoice always. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to pray without ceasing. I pray that you will help us, Lord, to give thanks in all circumstances because this is your will in Christ Jesus for us. And I pray these things now in your name. Amen.